Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. Okay, let's turn to the book of Romans. We're going to finish the series up this morning. Verses 21 to 27. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is a host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of the faith, To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now what a journey this has been for me personally to go through the book of Romans. And I hope something of the fire that has burned in me has been passed on to you. As we've learned about Paul, especially in his understanding of the gospel... It's been a privilege to sit at the feet of the greatest theologian in church history, the greatest church planner, the greatest pioneer missionary of Christianity is the Apostle Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus, who persecuted the church, but became a preacher of the gospel. This has been a journey through Paul's longest and greatest letter, You might remember at the beginning, when I gave the introduction about Romans, that there is no other writing in the ancient world that has engaged the attention of more people, hundreds of thousands of Christians, have been prompted to study this letter. You cannot say that about any other writing out of antiquity, but it is true of the book of Romans. Now, it's interesting that it seems as though Paul brought this letter to a conclusion in stages. And I'm not sure why it happened like that. Perhaps as he came to sort of a conclusion, then he had more thoughts and he kept going as he was dictating this to Tertius. But go back to chapter 15 and read verse 13. And the epistle could have closed with, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Kind of sounds like a conclusion to me. Look at verse 33, the same chapter. May the the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Chapter 16, verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Almost like a conclusion. 
Verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So it almost seems like Paul was having a hard time bringing this letter to an end. He has numerous doxologies and praises to God, but we are really at the end now. And this is an amazing conclusion to this epistle. But before we look at his doxology, notice in verses 21 and 23 that Paul includes greetings from his co-labors, from his associates, from those that were with him in Corinth. Remember, Romans was written from Corinth. That's where he was when this letter was sent. And guess who would be the first person that he sends greetings in the name of? Timothy. This was his most valued and trusted co-labor in the gospel. Timothy held a first place in the life of the apostle. He's mentioned more often than any other associate of Paul. Seventeen times Paul mentions Timothy in his letters. Not only that, but he puts his name up with himself in six of his letters as though he is a co-author of the letter. And in addition to that, he wrote two letters to this young man. When did Paul meet Timothy? Well, you remember as we went through the book of Acts, he met him on his second missionary journey. When he came, when he returned to those cities in Asia that he had originally gone to on his first journey. Timothy was converted in Lystra on Paul's first missionary journey. He was converted by the Apostle Paul. How do we know that? Paul refers to him four times in his two letters to Timothy as my child, my beloved child. He said that because he was a spiritual father through the gospel. Timothy came to the Lord Jesus Christ through Paul's ministry. Paul left Timothy behind in Macedonia when he was returning to Palestine, and then they met up again on Paul's third missionary journey. So Timothy is presently with Paul in Corinth, and he will be with him in his Roman imprisonment as well. Well, this was a very special man in Paul's ministry. Now next, he mentions Lucius. Now this could be the Lucius of Cyrene that is mentioned as one of the prophets and teachers in the church at Antioch in Acts 13. Other commentators think this may be a reference to Dr. Luke because an alternative form of Lucas is Lucius which would be how this word, this name, is written in the original language. I don't know if we can argue that very strongly, but there's those that take that view, that Dr. Luke is actually with Paul here as well. Next, he mentions Jason. And notice, Jason apparently was a host to the Apostle Paul, in Thessalonica. If you go back to Acts chapter 17 and read the 
story there when Paul went to Thessalonica when he was in Macedonia. Verses 5 to 9 mentions Jason four times. He opened his home up and hosted Paul when he was in Thessalonica. Remember all the commotion that happened there and they ended up dragging, they went to get Paul, but he was not at home, so they dragged Jason out of his house. And then we have Sosipater, which is probably the same individual that's called Sopater by Luke in Acts 20, Sopater of Berea. He accompanied Paul when Paul left Greece near the end of his third journey. Now what Paul says about these three men in particular, and I'm not sure he includes Timothy, but he says, my kinsmen. What does he mean by that? He means these are his fellow Jews. So at least Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater were Jewish men. Perhaps Timothy was, his mother was Jewish, but his father was Greek, and he was not circumcised. So I'm not sure if Paul would have considered Timothy Jewish or not. But at least it applies to the previous men. It's in the plural, my kinsmen, meaning the previous names that he had mentioned. Now, they're probably with Paul because these, may, these men came from the churches that Paul had planted. And they are with him in Corinth because Paul is taking a gift back to Jerusalem. So these could have been Paul's associates that were going with him to present the gift to the believers in Jerusalem. Remember, he wanted some Jewish Christians along with him to validate this gift and that it came from principally Gentile churches. Now, verse 22, we now come to the man who wrote the act, who actually wrote the letter, Tertius. Now, in the ancient world, there were very few people that were literate and able to write a letter. If they wanted to communicate that way, they had to have somebody do it, a scribe. So, Tertius is a scribe for the apostle here. Doesn't mean Paul was unable to write it, but for some reason he had this man write the letter. And it's kind of unusual, he allows Tertius to send his own greeting. He gave him that opportunity. Usually the scribe would not say anything about himself in a letter he was writing for another person. But Paul probably said, go ahead and greet the people. So he sends his own greeting... I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you. Notice he's a believer. I greet you in the Lord. You know, how did you write this? There may have been some form of shorthand back in the ancient world that he used. Because Paul probably did not say, uh, you know, speak real slowly, one word, let him write it down, and they'd go to the next. No, no, no. Paul was probably speaking very freely, and this man was just taking notes. People that are good at shorthand can do that. C.H. Spurgeon had a secretary by the name of Joseph Harold. And if you have all the Spurgeon sermons, which probably none of you do, but I, I do. I bought them years ago, three, three or four volumes at a time, when I had a friend working in a bookstore, and every month he sent me 
the next set, and I was able to buy them that way. They were very expensive back then, and even more now. 62 volumes, 3,500 sermons. We have those sermons of Spurgeon because of Joseph Harold. He took notes while Spurgeon was preaching every time. It's amazing that he was with him throughout his ministry. Caught it all. So this is the work of Tertius. Now, verse 23. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church. Now, this is a, this is a common name in the ancient world, and so there's three of them mentioned in the New Testament. This is the Gaius of Corinth that Paul baptized. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1. I baptize Crispus and Gaius and the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I, I didn't baptize anyone else. Because God did not send Paul to baptize, but to preach the gospel. But he did, so Gaius was one of the early converts to have been baptized by the apostle. So this is who he is mentioning here, Gaius. And he offered hospitality to traveling Christians. He gave Paul... Uh, lodging in Corinth, and apparently he opened his home up to the church, so they were able to meet there. Remember, there were no church buildings until the third century. So they had to meet in homes. And those who had larger homes, who had more money and were able to afford them, they could host 30 to 50 people. This is kind of common knowledge of the size of the homes back in those days. Today, some homes can host several hundred, but that, that isn't the way it was in the ancient world. Then he mentions Erastus, the city treasurer, or the CFO of Corinth. He greets you. And then finally, Cordus, who we know nothing about except he's a brother. So those are Paul's greetings from those that are with him. Now let's go to the doxology. Verse 25 to 27. You may say, well, where's verse 24? Well, if you have a note in your Bible, you might see that verse 24 is in very fine print. It'll say something like uh, most of the ancient manuscripts do not contain this verse or something to that effect. But if you look at it, what is verse 24? If it is, if it does belong, it's another ending. <laughs> because it says, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So it's another one. As Paul is concluding this letter. Now to him. Paul now is worshiping. And I wonder if our appreciation of this letter brings us to the same point of worshiping God. Does your heart say amen to this? Now to him who is able to strengthen you, or to establish you. In other words, to ground you and to keep you in your faith as a believer. You know, who is it that keeps us coming back to church every Sunday? 
Who is it that keeps us professing faith in Christ day after day, week after week, year after year? Well, the Bible teaches not only the doctrine of perseverance, that i got to continue in the faith if I want to be saved. we got to look at the flip side of that, which is divine preservation. We are kept by the power of God, Peter chapter 1 tells us in verse 5, who are kept by the power of God. Or over in Jude 24, we are kept from falling. Now unto him which is able to keep you from falling. Falling? Yeah, falling away. Becoming an apostate. The Lord Jesus Christ, he prayed in his great high priestly prayer of John 17, that we are kept from being lost, from perishing. He lost none that were given to him except one, the son of perdition. But he keeps us, he gives us eternal life, and we shall never perish. So the fact that we are kept in the faith, we persevere in the faith, that's due to him who is able to establish us, secure our standing in Christ, and keep us there throughout our life. Glory to God. Now, that is according to my gospel, he says. I like it that Paul says it's my gospel. Now, he doesn't mean by that, that his gospel is different from the gospel of Peter, James, and John, and the other apostles. Because he tells us in the book of Galatians, when he went to Jerusalem and he met the leaders of the church, they were on the same page when it came to the teaching. They taught the same message. Paul doesn't mean it like that, that it's his esoteric message that's kind of weird and different from everybody else. No, no, no. He calls it my gospel because he received it not by having been taught by someone. It didn't, it didn't come from man. He tells us in Galatians 1.12, he received it by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ revealed his gospel to him. And he says over in Timothy's epistle that it was entrusted to him. So in a very special way, it's his gospel. It's his message of good news that was entrusted to him as the apostle to the Gentiles. He used that term back in the second chapter of Romans, verse 16, when he said, when, in the day when God judges the secrets of men according to my gospel. And then he uses it another time in his second letter to Timothy, chapter 2 and verse 8. So three times Paul says, it's my gospel. Now he's going to tell us some things about his gospel. And this is what we want to think through, because it's all here. And really, what he gives us here is several of the things that he has elucidated upon and exposited for the church in his letter to the Romans. But now he encapsulates these things once again in the doxology. So let's look at it together, what he says here about it. So God strengthens you according to my gospel. There's kind of there's a two ways to understand the connection between that phrase 
and the fact that God preserves us, strengthens us, establishes us as a Christian. It could mean that this is inherent to his teaching of the gospel, that it's a truth, a subpoint of the gospel that he teaches about Christians maintaining, persevering, being preserved in the faith, that it's a, it's a truth that is included in the preaching of the gospel. Or it, the word that is translated according to, it has a secondary meaning in some places that means as a result of or on the basis of. So it could be that Paul is saying that God secures us in our Christian walk and keeps us persevering through the gospel. This is the means by which God does this in our lives. But now let's look in the first place who the gospel is about. What's the great subject, the central theme of the good news? The preaching of Jesus Christ. That's it. It's all about him. Remember he told us this in the first chapter, when this letter opened up, when he talked about the gospel that it concerned Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of God, by the resurrection from the dead, so on. Well, he goes back, this is who it's all about. If we're not preaching Jesus Christ, we're not preaching the gospel. And I'm afraid in there, there are some churches where there's a big emphasis on how to live the Christian life and on Christian experience and how we're to get along in this world and so on. And there's not a whole lot of preaching about Christ. There's something wrong there. There's something missing. There's something lacking. God's people need to be hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you think you know it all about Him? You want to know something? It's going to take all eternity to really know all that can be known about Him and what He did for us, what was involved in Him coming into this world, becoming a man, and going to the cross, and being raised from the dead. Now look what he says about this as he unfolds it. The preaching of Jesus Christ, now another according to, According to the revelation of the mystery. See, the gospel was a revelation of a mystery. Now, we know what the Bible means by a mystery. We have to think in terms of something that was hidden before, but now is revealed. And God chooses to reveal it. In other words, something in God's eternal plan that's hidden from mankind... Until God reveals it. He discloses it. This is the word. Paul told us this in the first chapter again when he said, For in the gospel is revealed the righteousness of God from faith to faith. Same word. It's a revelation. It wasn't entirely understood in the Old Testament, though it was taught there. But it came to light when it unfolded before us. So it's a revelation. 
Charles Hodge tells us that the gospel reveals a system of truth that is beyond human conception. A system of truth. Who would ever come up with the doctrines that are connected to unfolding the Jesus Christ when we preach him? Nobody would come up with these ideas, these, these truths. This is a system of truth that came by divine revelation. Paul goes on to say that it was kept secret for long ages, but now disclosed. Now the word disclosed, it's in a particular tense of the original language, which is referring to a, an event, like a single event. That was kept secret or hidden for all those ages is now come to light. It has been disclosed by something, some great event. I think Paul is referring specifically to the incarnation there. That this is, this is the mystery. Who They didn't really get this. That the Messiah was going to be a God-man. I don't think they had that concept. Remember, Jesus challenged them with the question, after they asked him, trying to trap him, he said, let me ask you a question. Who is, who is the Messiah going to be? Whose son is he? Remember, they had the answer to that. Oh, he's the son of David. They knew that. Meaning, okay, he's going to be a descendant of David. He's going to be a human being. He's going to come through David's line. But then Jesus turns it around and he says, based on Psalm 110 and verse 1, Well, how is it then that David, by the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord? My Lord. My Adonai. Which is a divine name, only applied to deity. The God of the Bible, never to a human. Yahweh said to my Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You know, they didn't have anything, they had no answer to that. But what he's, what he's trying to teach them is that the Messiah is going to be the son of David, but he's also going to be David's Lord. He's going to be the God-man. He's going to have both natures. That was hidden. It's there in the Old Testament, but could be easily missed. So this is the great event, God becoming a man, entering human history. This is the climax and the pinnacle of salvation history, as one commentator put it. Salvation history. The climax of salvation history is the incarnation. The enfleshment of God. God becoming a man. Then Paul adds, through the prophetic writings. This again goes back to the first chapter. And throughout the letter of Romans, how many times did we have to look at Paul's quotation of the Old Testament? He's making a theological argument and then he punctuates it. Proof texts his argument with an Old Testament quote. He's constantly referring to the Word of God. 
in what we call now the Old Testament. But that was for Paul, the word of God. He's quoting the word of God to us. The prophetic writings. It's the prophetic writings that open the gospel to us. That prepare us for it. But we're never really prepared for what God did. It's there. A lot of it is hidden from us. We didn't understand how it was going to play out eventually. But the Word of God is the primary source of information and understanding that they had in the first century of the gospel. There was no New Testament yet. But now the church has the book of Romans to help them with their understanding. Paul just keeps adding to it here, doesn't he? Through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations... Who's the gospel for? It's for all nations. They need it now. They need it. Everyone needs it. It's to all nations. There's a universal need, universal appeal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not for one particular ethnic group or race or anything like that. I heard Billy Graham say once that, preaching to a huge crowd of people, that Jesus, he was a color that appealed to all of the surrounding nations. All men needed him. Notice the, this is according to the eternal command, the, God, the command of the eternal God, He's made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God. This is the authority that stands behind the dissemination of the gospel. This is not an option for the church. We are to propagate the gospel, but it's, it's according to the command of God. That was the Lord Jesus Christ Himself who commanded the gospel to be spread throughout the earth. So we're commanded to circulate the gospel, to propagate it, to broadcast it like seed to all the nations. This is according to God's command. Now what's the goal? What's the object of that? Paul's very clear. Look at it. To bring about the obedience of faith. Now Paul uses both the noun and the verb in the book of Romans when he's talking about the verb is to believe. 20 times in Romans. And the noun faith, 39 times. But when he talks about believing, it's the same thing as faith. Faith and believing, they're synonymous. One's the noun, the other is the verb. Notice he says it's the obedience of faith. This is something that we need to communicate more, I think, to people. In in some ways, well, yeah, you know, you're, you're, you're supposed to believe when you hear the gospel, but it needs to be a little bit 
more forceful than that. This is God's command. There's no... We don't want that to sound like it's so optional it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. No, it's a matter of life and death. If they want to be right with God, if they want to have their sins forgiven, they must believe. The obedience of faith. Paul used that same expression again in chapter 1 when he's talking about his apostleship. That he was sent to all the nations with the gospel in order to bring about the obedience of faith. So faith is is a response of obedience to the word of God. Now what is it to believe? I know this is elementary, but I think we need to think about it for a minute. I want to put it together for you like this. To have faith or to believe is to consider Jesus to be true and worthy of our trust. It begins with considering Jesus to be true. Very important. How many times does he in the Gospel of John turn faith on believing what he says? In other words, you're not believing correctly in Jesus if we dispute his teaching. If we think he was 99% in everything, but there was like 1% of his teaching that I just can't accept this. We're not, we're not there yet. We accept Jesus as true. We consider him to be totally true. The most truthful, honest person. I am the way, the truth, the life. He is the embodiment of truth. He's not going to lie. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, he says. This is the kind of person he was. Consider Jesus as true, and therefore he's worthy of our trust. Now, being worthy of our trust, where do we go from there? We then, because he is worthy of our trust, we entrust ourselves to him with complete confidence. But what are we trusting him for? What, 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 why do I need to trust him? We trust him for our salvation. We put our salvation in his hands. Our future, our hope, the salvation of our soul. Paul said, I know whom I have believed. Notice that. It begins with knowing whom he believed. He knows Christ's character. He knows he's true. I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. Until that day, a judgment. When I see him face to face. That's a beautiful expression of faith in the Apostle Paul. 1 Timothy 1.12 So this is the obedience of faith that he calls us to. This is the goal of the preaching of the gospel. So after Paul says all of that about the gospel, now comes his doxology. To the only wise God. Ah. Why does he pick that attribute out to hold up? He's talked about the God of peace, the God of hope. 
But now Paul is focused on his wisdom. He's just gone through the gospel with us, point by point, because the gospel highlights God's wisdom in a way like nothing else does. Let's think about it for a minute. How does the gospel single out and glorify the attribute of divine wisdom? Well, it's in the design of the gospel, its contrivance, its creativeness, and how it was accomplished. Let me pull out a a few things, first of all. God's wisdom resolved the problem of how to exercise and execute justice in the punishment of sin and at the same time extend and exercise his mercy in the forgiveness of sinners. You see, that was a big problem. How is God going to uphold the justice of his law and punish sin as it deserves, but be merciful to to man so that he can save him, deliver him from his sin? How's God going to do that? Oh, his wisdom figured it out. His wisdom designed a way where he could do both of those. So some say that at the cross, divine justice and divine mercy come together and they kiss one another at the cross. This is how God did it. This is why Christ is called the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians 1. Think about God's wisdom in the mediator that he appointed. How he figured that out. Because the problem was, there's a big gap between God and man. Man, the finite creature, and God, the infinite creator. God, infinitely holy. Man, sunk into the mire of his sin and guilt. How is a relationship going to be restored between these two? How are they going to come together? How are they going to be reconciled? So that man can have a relationship with him. How is God going to resolve that? By appointing a mediator who can stand between both, who has both the nature of God and the nature of man, can lay his hand on both and bring them together. I mean, it's amazing. This is why it's the wisdom of God. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Paul tells us in Colossians 2. And then finally, how about... The fact that God's wisdom turned man's sin and guilt, his dreadful and desperate plight that he was in because of his disobedience, how he turned that into an occasion of raising man to a height and a level that far exceeded what he was in the Garden of Eden when he was not fallen. Do you follow that? What I'm saying is, is that we have a greater position now and in eternity because of Jesus Christ 
having fallen into the mire of sin, he's lifted us out and he's going to raise us to the heavenlies. He's going to give us a place and a position that far exceeds what unfallen, innocent Adam and Eve had. It's only divine wisdom that thought of that. So no wonder the Apostle Paul, because remember when we went through Romans 5, the several times that Paul says, how much more, how much more? If this happened with Adam, how much more will we have this in Christ? This is what Paul is emphasizing. The greater the position, the greater the exaltation, the greater the state of redeemed man than unfallen Adam. This is God's wisdom. This is the amazing wisdom of God in the gospel. So no wonder Paul says, then finally, to the only wise God, that is, really what that means is the only God who alone is wise. He's not acknowledging that there's other gods, but they're just not as wise as Yahweh. That's not, that's not what he means. The only God, the only God who's alone wise, be glory forevermore. You notice, again, as we've seen throughout this letter, it's through Jesus Christ. The glory that will redound to God throughout the eternal ages is all because of the Lord Jesus Christ, what he was willing to do on our behalf. It was a huge step for him to leave the glory of heaven and come into this world. That was a huge stoop for Jesus. Paul speaks of it as him humbling himself to do that. That's the understatement, humbling himself. That was infinite condescension on the part of the Son of God to come into this world of sin and misery and shame and darkness and everything else and become one of us in order to work out our redemption. He did it not for himself. He did it for us. He came to redeem us from our sin. Glory be to his name forever and ever. Amen. Something to ponder. I like what F.F. Bruce said, the famous professor of Manchester University, professor of biblical criticism at exegesis. He says, you never know what's going to happen when people begin to study the book of Romans. I like that quote. Hopefully you've been inspired to spend more time in this book. This is why Barnhouse preached for 20 years on the book of Romans. Lloyd-Jones on 13 years. We just spent a year and a half in it. Wasn't that long. I pray the Lord blesses it and just helps us to grow in our faith and our understanding of the gospel, our understanding of Christianity as a whole, and to realize there's more depth to what we believe than we previously thought. And that Christians, many Christians today, seem to think, well, if you confess Jesus loves me and he died on the cross, that you've got it all. It's way, way more than that. 
Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.